To mark the launch of the new Spectator app, we're offering our podcast listeners the chance to try a three-month digital subscription absolutely free. To start your trial, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash app offer. Hurry though, the offer ends on Sunday. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the stories from the new issue of the magazine and invite the writers and experts to join us in explaining and debating the themes we've touched upon. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, can the Prime Minister paper over the cracks or is it curtains for Boris? Plus, how will the Internet of Things shape global conflicts in the future? And finally, we speak to two people at the forefront of the COVID crisis in India. First up, since coming to office, the Prime Minister has defeated the EU, Jeremy Corbyn and coronavirus. But does the news that the Electoral Commission is opening an investigation into his finances mean it might finally be curtains for Boris? We're joined by ITV's political editor and author of this week's diary, Robert Peston, and our own deputy political editor, Katie Balls, to discuss the extraordinary convulsions in Downing Street. Katie, this has been an extraordinary week in Downing Street. Has the Prime Minister finally met his comeuppance in the form of Dominic Cummings and the interior designer Lulu Little? I think we're edging there. I think that if you're looking at Dominic Cummings versus Boris Johnson, it feels that this is just, you know, one chapter in what is probably going to be a long, uh, potentially never-ending saga where neither party comes out particularly well, but ultimately the Prime Minister has more to lose. I think we're seeing a situation where ultimately the Tories are riding high in the polls, lots of Tory MPs as of last week, and I think still this week, are privately expecting to make gains to have some things potentially a Hartlepool win in the by-election but yeah you have this strange situation where all of that sounds very good but the papers are filled with negative stories about how Boris Johnson is running his number 10 about whether he behaved improperly in terms of funding the refurbishment of his flat and lots of people saying oh is this just a media bubble story but the Prime Minister is clearly rattled because the reason we have got to this point is because last Thursday the Prime Minister decided it was a good idea to brief several papers that he blamed this all on Dominic Cummings. Robert, you write about that in your diary. I mean, wh- what do you make of the fact that Boris has briefed against his former advisor, Dominic Cummings? It, it is a, an odd thing for a Prime Minister to do, but there is very little that is conventional about the Boris Johnson premiership. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd for two reasons. One is prime ministers don't very often pick up the phone to a series of editors to, uh, you know, denigrate a former official. In fact, I can't, I can't remember any instance of that in British political history. And secondly, the prime minister, presumably better than anybody, knows that, you know, Dominic Cummings is not somebody who will simply, you know, shrug off what he feels is, uh, uh, you know, a sort of an attack on his integrity. I mean, what I think, you know, as I understand it, Dominic Cummings found particularly annoying was the premise of sort of, you know, as we understand it, a number of things about the untrustworthiness of, uh, or the alleged untrustworthiness of Dominic Cummings. But the thing that, as I understand it, particularly annoyed Dominic Cummings was the suggestion that it was he who leaked, you know, the details or the fact that we were going into a a second lockdown uh, in November, which, I mean, it's not to say 
that you know Dominic Cummings has you know never engaged in sophisticated briefing of the media but he feels that this was a particularly malign leak and he doesn't want to be associated with it so he decided to hit back. Katie one of the points that you make in your piece this week is that lots of Boris's senior advisors the people who brought him into Downing Street have now left and who are the key people now advising him? Well, it's an interesting one because obviously we know Dominic Cummings has left, Lee Kane has left, his former director of communications, and the Vote Leave team, I think, have taken up plenty of column inches. But also in that same time, Eddie Lister, Boris Johnson's long-standing aide, has left. James Slack, who is very much seen as a safe pair of hands and stepped in when Lee Kane uh, left to do the comms, has, has also chosen to go. And in this place, I think we're still trying to work out really who has the power, but the, the general structure is Dan Rosenfield is the new chief of staff. He came in after the Vote Leave internal fighting, a former civil servant, not belonging to any faction, uh, you know, whether it's City Hall, Vote Leave, uh, Govites, Carry Crew, whatever you want to call them, he'd be able to ultimately put an end to the infighting. But actually, from the reports you hear, I, I don't think that people see him as really being fully in charge or getting on with everyone. And then you have, I think, uh, a range of Govites in the form of Simone Finn, who is the deputy to Rosenfield, Henry Newman, who used to work for Michael Gove. He is one of the three musketeers of Boris Johnson's, all of whom used to work for Michael Gove. But there's also a Carrie Simons element there because Henry Newman, if you have as a close friends of her, um, the Prime Minister's fiancé. So I think what's interesting about it is when you're trying to work out who is exactly doing what, I find it confusing to be people in there in terms of how it's all working. And, that, and I think it goes back to that decision on Thursday to brief the papers, which is lots of people know the Prime Minister can get himself into a bit of a flap and also inevitable in a way if he's slowly being wound up but a strip drip feed of stories wherever they are coming from maybe it's Dominic Cummings maybe it's other people he was going to snap at some point but the point is you want people around you who can step in and say you might want to do this prime minister but we're really recommending you, you don't or at least you wait till after the local elections. Robert clearly the Cummings saga isn't about to end and, and you slightly allude to that in your diary it seems to just be getting started really w- what else do you think might come out that could be damaging to the prime minister? Uh, I mean, so as Katie said at the beginning, I mean, the, the, the big test for the Prime Minister comes next week with these elections. Uh, the signs are at the moment that the Tories may well do relatively well. And, you know, Tory parties tolerate leaders and prime ministers who perform well in elections, you know, whatever, uh, you know, appalling publicity surrounds them in in other respects. And, you know, this is a, you know, Tories party is always ruthless about this. If the this Prime Minister ever looked as though it was, he was becoming a liability to the Tories, he'd be out. And I mean, one of the interesting questions is whether, you know, outside of people like us, uh, the question of, you know, how long the Tory party lent money to the Prime Minister to, you know, lavishly refurbish his flat, the sums of money involved. I mean, obviously, as I said, it's, it's incredibly gripping for people like us, whether it's really upsetting, you know, Tory, you know, converts to the Tory cause in the north of England. Well, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that at all at the moment. Uh, more serious, though, I think, for the Prime Minister is the, Dominic Cummings' appearance in front of MPs uh, in this super committee of the Health Committee and the Science Committee on May the 26th, because the big disagreement between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings has been over how to deal with the uh, COVID crisis. And on a number of occasions, and probably the most important one is in September, on a number of occasions, uh, Cummings has recommended locking down harder 
and earlier than the Prime Minister wanted to do. And it will be Cummings's evidence, and I think especially about what happened in September. Cummings, uh, in early September, was very much in favour of fairly severe action to clamp down on rising coronavirus infections. Uh, a lockdown. Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, opposed on economic grounds. We didn't get one till November. And then, of course, we got the Great Kent strain and we had, a, you know, just coming out of this third lockdown. You know, the point that, you know, Cummings will make is that lives were lost because of decisions that the Prime Minister made. And if that charge sticks, that is much more serious for the Prime Minister than, you know, how he paid for his apartment. Yeah, I think the select committee appearances what has been worrying number 10 for some time. And when you've had justifications uh, in terms of why uh, they did what they did in, in making this fight public, because tensions have been festering um, behind the scenes for some time um, regarding Cummings and these uh, you know, alleged leaks, there's a sense that actually you could potentially discredit Dominic Cummings ahead of this uh, select committee appearance. You could get things out in the open so it has less impact when he speaks. And ultimately, the sense that the Prime Minister is more popular than Dominic Cummings. So actually, if you say all this damaging stuff comes from someone who's you know less popular, that might dent some of it. But when it comes to that select committee appearance, I think it's going to be wide ranging. I think, as Robert says, Dominic Cummings has also said, you know, you can ask me about anything. So you can completely see how it will go elsewhere, um, depending on the questions that MPs ask. And I think it's interesting you look at the history of Dominic Cummings and select committee appearances. He hasn't always been particularly enthusiastic. He was once found in contempt of Parliament for refusing to give evidence on a select committee on fake news when he did actually appear before one during the EU referendum. The first words he really uttered was to say to a quite disgruntled chair, you know, well, I've actually got a meeting at a four, so I'm going to need to be done by Len. Uh, and things really went from bad to worse from Len on in. But this time around, he's saying, you know, uh, I will answer as many questions. I will stay as long as they like. And there's obviously a reason for that. He has plenty of things he wants to say, and he wants to say them on the record. And I think that's uncomfortable for the Prime Minister. Thank you, Robert. And thank you, Katie. Next up, is the future of warfare a virtual reality? In this week's magazine, Professor Noel Sharkey argues that the combined potential of the Internet of Things, virtual reality and cyber warfare will shape the way global conflicts are fought in the future. He joins us now alongside former soldier and military affairs expert Colonel Richard Kemp to debate the story. Noel, in your article this week, you quote from last month's Government's Defence Command paper and you say that they say, the threats of today are different from those that we are used to, what did you interpret that as meaning? Well, I interpreted it as meaning that there would be much more, rather than kinetic force, which is the usual kind of force applied, that we're talking about cyber force. So cyber hacking, cyber attacks on the internet, penetrating our defences, etc. And that's the kind of thing. It's, it's not new, though. This has been known by our defence forces for the last 20 years, I've been at various conferences where they've attended, but it's becoming more critical now as, as uh, cyber hackers are getting much, much better. And what sorts of problems could cyber hacking cause? Well, I mean, there, there are so many. Uh, I mean, we've seen already that there's lots of attacks, like ransomware attacks. But my biggest concerns, I suppose, you can hack into people's computers, you can set up botnets, you can do political disruption, all those things that we know, all know about. But I suppose my biggest concern is the use of um, not information attacks, but operational attacks. And operational attacks are when you have a, 
attack a physical device. So you move a physical device. For instance, the US and, and Israel allegedly attacked the Iranian nuclear program in 2010 with a virus called the Stuxnet. And what the Stuxnet did was it hunted out and found controllers for the uh, cyclotrons, the, the speeding things that you need in the, uh, the motors, Siemens motors uh, that were used in the nuclear industry, and they made them move erratically. So they broke up and destroyed themselves. But then that's not the only thing that can happen. I mean, hackers from Iranian hackers, I say allegedly all the time, because one of the problems is we don't actually can ever really rarely prove who did the hacking or where it came from. You can only go with signature kind of things. So the PLA, Chinese military, have a particular signature. But somebody else could copy that and we wouldn't know where it came from. But uh, alleged uh, Iranian hackers broke into a dam in uh, United States, just outside New York. It was a small dam, so it wasn't too important. But they were able to take control of the sluice gates, which at the time just happened to be down for maintenance, otherwise they could have opened them. But that caused a scare because what about a big dam like the Hoover Dam, where hundreds of thousands of people could be harmed or killed? So if you start opening a dam, that could really destroy things. Richard, can you give a bit of a picture of what measures the UK has taken recently to safeguard ourselves from cyber attacks? Well, the UK has got a national cyber defence centre, which was made up of um, a number of different capabilities to uh, effectively to protect both government and non-government infrastructure in this country and is just in the process now of setting up a national cyber force, which is effectively part of it's, it's a combination really of GCHQ, the government communications headquarters, MI6 and the armed forces really coming under the MOD. And that is not only to help protect against cyber conflict, but also to give us an offensive cyber capability. Because it's important, of course, in any conflict that we have the ability to not only protect ourselves, but also to use the cyber weapon as part of that conflict. It's now for the force, well, forever probably, cyber will be a very, very important part of all future conflicts. And therefore, we do need to have the offensive capability to handle it. It's very strange that that the UK has been so slow. I met the cyber US cyber warriors 10 years ago at a conference and they were already had been doing it for for 10 years prior to that. So we really have a lot of catching up to do here, I think. And no, in a in a war situation, I mean what what could we potentially expect to see? I mean is it a situation where all of our boilers get turned off and we're all suddenly freezing or is 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 that kind of a bit sort of a bit loopy as an idea. No, that's not loopy at all. I mean, I wouldn't worry about the boilers being turned off. I'd worry about the heating systems being turned up. I mean, one of the concerns I have, because I work in the civil domain quite a lot, is what you call the Internet of Things devices, like uh, Alexa or your home thermostat, your Nest thermostat. We've got loads of those. People even have internet toothbrushes, internet dildos, you know, all anything that can be connected to the internet, people have just because it's a gadget. You know, oh, look, let's what you would want an internet toothbrush for, I've no idea. But the trouble with those is they're very insecure 
and so it's possible to penetrate them quite easily and people tend to not even change the default password. Uh, let me give you a very good example and this will let you see it exactly. There's a casino in the United States in 2017 uh, highly secure because it's got all the data for everybody in, in there, uh, all the credit card details, everything. What the hackers did was they went into the fish tank in the lobby. They got in there via their fish tank thermostat. So they broke into the fish tank thermostat and redirected their traffic into the internet and stole you know, hundreds of megabytes of, well, gigabytes of data before they were caught. So that's the kind of capabilities of, if we're all using these devices and people are not being secure. The other thing you can do is you can just plant a, um, like the Dynatac, you can simply plant a virus in there. And what the virus will do is it will hunt for other insecure IoT devices, recruit them into a massive botnet, and then they can have distributed denial of service. They can blast a company, say Twitter, The Guardian, they were the ones who fell foul to this before, uh, Netflix, and stop the sites from working altogether. So if you think about this, we could be in the conditions of a medieval siege with this kind of technology. They could stop our food supplies, disrupt our ambulances, attack people's pacemakers, attack their, uh, you know, any, any bio device you have on your body. They could attack um, intensive care places. You know, it's all open to attack. And we're not, despite the fact that we're developing a cyber capability, we're not really, we're still very, very vulnerable to all of this. Richard, clearly China is, a, is at the forefront of this. Do you, I mean, do you think we've significantly endangered our national defences by perhaps focusing more on trade with China than our own security? Yeah, I think um, we obviously need to continue trading with China. But we made a very big mistake a number of years back, and not just us, but other countries in the world, when they decided to treat China as a normal trading partner, when China clearly has other ideas. And it's, it was very naive of us, I think, to allow, for example, Huawei to become part of our current internet infrastructure. And, and the idea that they should then play a major infrastructure role in 5G technology was a really big mistake. And so I think, you know, we, we need to continue trading with them, but looking at them in a different way, because it's, and it's not just cyber. There are so many different areas in which China, you know, things like theft of technology, things like disinformation and numerous other areas that the Chinese are working against our national interests. So we do need to keep them very much at arm's length, I believe. I know China well. I've spent quite a lot of time there. And I think people have really, really underestimated the technological development of China. It's quite extraordinary. And the number of people they have, they just set up at 200 new IT universities. They could afford to have one person for every member of the British public. You know, I don't see, I can't see much defense against China. And they're really brilliant at espionage. The stories pour out. The General Dynamics in the United States, a defense company, saw the Chinese were in their machines for three years. They changed machines, they changed software, and they just could not get rid of them. They were just taking all the blueprints for the controllers. You know, it's, 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 really, it's really scary to me. In fact, it's very, very scary to me, I have to say. Thank you, Noel and Richard. And finally, the situation in India has deteriorated rapidly over the past few weeks, 
to the point where today the country is in the grip of an unprecedented health crisis. In this week's edition, we have a report from Delhi, and to discuss what's going on, we're joined now by Rajiv Dasgupta, the chairman of the Centre of Social Medicine and Community Health at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi, and from the Apollo Glen Eagles Hospital in Calcutta, Dr. Dipshika Ghosh, who has been working in COVID units since the pandemic began last March. Rajiv, can you give us a bit of a picture of what life has been like in India over the past week? The overwhelming imagery that we see in the media, as well as from the other ground reports, both across some of the large cities and increasingly across smaller towns too, is of the health service system getting immensely stretched, of it being difficult to find beds, it's difficult to have an adequate assured supply of oxygen and other essentials. And therefore, increasingly over the last couple of weeks, uh, two things have happened. One, of course, is is reinforcing uh, issues of supply, reinforcing the logistics of it, adding beds and capacities, plus the fact that restrictions of various kinds, whether more of a generalized lockdown or in some cases, night curfews or weekend restrictions have increasingly been imposed more or less across all states. So two of the worst affected till now, Delhi, as well as Maharashtra, including Mumbai, the financial capital, have actually fortunately shown signs of plateauing, uh, at least. And can you tell us a bit about the vaccine uptake in India? I mean, I mean, how's, how's the vaccine program going? The vaccine program is being implemented through the state governments with support from the central or the federal government. So currently there are about 70,000 odd uh, vaccination centers across the country, which is, which is a very large number of vaccination centers, as you can imagine. So between the second half of March and the first half of April, the average vaccinations increased from about 2.5 million doses to 3.5 million doses. But the second half of April actually saw a marginal decline, which is perhaps on account of two reasons. One, the COVID uh, disease spreading, and therefore some restrictions in movement, plus there may not be, there, there may be a bit of a scare of coming to the, to the hospitals and other vaccination centers. And secondly, of course, some of the disruptions in the supply, as we know, which hopefully will stabilize over the next few weeks. But it also means that beginning the 1st of May, when 18 year plus, the entire 18 year plus population becomes eligible for, for immunization, many states will not be able to start it on 1st of May, but perhaps a fortnight or so later. Dipshika, you've been working at the front line in a COVID unit in Calcutta. Can you tell us what the past 24 hours have been like for you? The past 24 hours, well, mine was actually an eight-hour shift, but those eight hours outweigh any 24-hour shifts that I've done in a regular ICU so far. I think I've been working in COVID units for the last one year, and what I've seen during this wave has been absolutely, uh, it nothing compares. It's just, it like I tweeted a while ago, it's absolute destruction. Today of all days, I think uh, I went in after about three weeks, and it's really bad. It's really bad. You, you get to hear reports from other cities and other states when uh, people are running out of oxygen and uh, they're just going from one hospital to the other and they really have no help coming their way at all uh, based on that. I saw some of it today. I, our oxygen almost 
ran out um, and then the reserve supplies kicked in so we almost lost a patient due to lack of oxygen and it is horrifying we take oxygen for granted i mean all my life i've seen people taking oxygen for granted in hospitals or anywhere else and that running out is a real scare and are you having to turn patients away i mean have you got lots of beds many not? many of them many of them in the beginning of the second wave we had only about uh, 100 to 120 beds and currently we have about 400 beds and even those beds are not enough there are so many patients there are so many patients who cannot be managed at home or who don't have the resources or the manpower to be managed at home um they would require hospitalization at some point and we would have to take care of them and monitor them and uh, you know keep them on medication which would require continuous monitoring so yes we have had to put them on wait lists some of whom time has not been on their side and what sort of age range are the patients tending to be initially in the first wave it was more people above the age of 45 with comorbidities significant comorbidities and uh, usually in the elderly age group if i may say geriatric patients mainly but this time we're seeing 29 year olds teenagers babies early 30s i mean their lungs are just so bad they are not being able to cope at all they're requiring very severe illnesses requiring ventilation and very extensive care and do you, i mean do you feel you're getting much support from the government and from perhaps international governments I work in a private healthcare facility so we do have a lot of resources that government facilities don't have so based on that I think we are in a better position to serve uh, whichever patient comes our way but yes government facilities are extremely low on resources initially when we started out we did not have masks and PPE um that was mainly a problem for healthcare workers but right now government facilities running out of oxygen running out of medication patient relatives having to run around to procure medication i think resources are an all time low because uh, we the, our system is not really handle uh, you know equipped to handle such volumes in spite of living in a country that has such a huge population i don't think our hospitals are equipped to handle a pandemic or a disaster at this scale do you think that this latest wave is going to change the indian health system it should it should i mean if this doesn't then there really is no hope for healthcare i i hope people are taking notice that public health deserves attention and healthcare is a sector that you know countries need to fund not just in terms of the medical services that are being provided to its people but also in terms of research and development rajib would you agree with that Oh yes that's an absolutely frank opinion and 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 uh, in, I'm in full agreement with her. And Dipshika just finally I mean it must have been a very stressful time for you working on a covid unit how how are you and your colleagues coping? It's it's really difficult this is probably the most difficult uh, thing we've ever had to do um reassuring patients knowing that they don't have any hope of recovery or revival and uh, telling patients that they are going to be okay some people can't handle you know the you, you can't really break bad news to everybody in the family there has to be one person who takes charge and you tell them and even even they are not prepared for a disease to progress so fast it's really it's i i really don't have words it's, it's just beyond me it's been devastating uh, rajib and dipshika thank you very much for joining and that's everything this week As ever, if you pick up the magazine, you can read everything we've talked about. Plus, we've got plenty more. We've got Dylan the Dog's Diary, as told to Rod Little. 
Roddy McDougall on Speedway, Britain's Left Behind Sport, and Henry Mance making the vegan case for field sports. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. To mark the launch of the new Spectator app, we're offering our podcast listeners the chance to try a three-month digital subscription absolutely free. To start your trial, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash app offer. Hurry though, the offer ends on Sunday.